you discover your sassy self? Women on the Rise seek out Dr. L. Carol Scott in her seven self-aware success strategies to help them remove invisible barriers, ignite self-confidence, and implement immediate actions for their personal and professional evolution. Join us on this conversation. You and I know that making smart financial decisions can be challenging, but in the 21st century, financial freedom is no longer just for the 1% wealthy. It is for you and me. The question is, how do we find time, avoid making painful mistakes, and find the best resources to help us reach our financial goals? Join me on my journey helping busy families figure out how they can gain financial confidence and clarity, get actionable tips, and learn from the best experts on how to stop trading time for money. It is now the time you started living your best financial life. My name is Anna Shergunina, and welcome to the Money Boss Podcast. Hey, Money Bosses, are you ready to get your financial life in order? Once and for all, as soon as possible? Are you tired of living paycheck to paycheck? Do you often lose track of how much money you have to spend? Do you want to get your financial life together, but just don't quite know how? I am with you. I've been there. I've struggled through all of these. And I know you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to get better. So why do you continue to struggle? I know you can get your own money in order. It took me years to figure out. It took me years of pain, struggle, frustration, anger. But you don't have to go through all of that. You don't even have to get a financial planning degree like I did in order to be successful. Allow me to present to you my Money Flow system, a free playbook of how you can automate your finances, even if you hate budgeting. After you download this free playbook, you will never have to worry about budgeting and who likes that budgeting thing anyway. You will stop accumulating debt and create a bulletproof plan of how to quickly pay it off. You will be able to pinpoint exactly what your income and expenses are. You will never have to miss a single bill again. And you will always, always have a solid idea of how much money is in each of your accounts. So head over to money-flowsystem.com to download my free Money Flow Playbook, a blueprint to streamline your finances in less five or five weeks. Guaranteed. Head over to money-flowsystem.com. Hello, Money Bosses. Anna's here and welcome back to the Money Boss Podcast. The topic of self-awareness is everywhere these days, but do we actually truly understand what it means to be self-aware? And I've had numerous conversations with guests on the show about mindset, money mindset particularly, and how understanding yourself a little bit better can give us the skills to be successful as adults in life and how we can go back and look at our experiences we've had, what our parents taught us, what our communities taught us, and and start to apply all of this um, in in the different areas. And I'm excited for our guest today, uh, Dr. Scott, who's intentionally focuses on supporting women on the rise, is a trauma-informed developmental psychologist. She shares with us how the first 2,500 days of our lives determine the skills for all relationships that we're gonna have 
going forward. And so I wanted to bring the combination of what Dr. Scott has to share with us today and this topic of self-awareness to help us really truly understand what is it and how is it we can do better. So first of all, Dr. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Anna, for having me on. I'm really grateful to be here in this conversation with you today. I'm excited. I know you have a very interesting approach um, and process of how you work with, with folks um, on this self-awareness self topic. So why don't we start by learning a little bit about how you got yourself involved in this and what your, your experience has been? Oh, I'd love to share that. It's It's been such an interesting journey because I didn't start out thinking I was going to learn about children. I thought I was going to be a psychologist, and I don't think I knew too much what that meant to me. But as part of my early education, I just landed in a class in child development as an elective, one of those classes you, you have to take so many sciences and so many this and that. And it just, you know, literally uh, grabbed me by my, I would say, spiritual shirt front and said, honey, you're coming with us. <laughs> this is your life right here. And so um, from, from that sort of unexpected beginning, I just kept getting pulled further and further into understanding what happens as we grow up, how we grow up, how the general process is for all of us. And then when I got to the level of where I was working on the, the doctorate, developmental and child psychology, I'd gone through a master's degree in early childhood education. And I was working on the PhD and I decided uh, at 30 that I needed to take a look at my own childhood. And so I went to therapy and discovered that not only do I understand how it's supposed to go for all of us, but now I understand what happens when it didn't go the way it's supposed to go. And I was able to look at my life with some new self-awareness tools because I didn't really get that who I was and how I was behaving at 30 had everything to do with what happened during those first seven years, those first 2,500 days, actually 2,555 mm -hmm. all the way to seven years, but we just call it the first 2,500 days. And that made me exactly who I was. And in that moment in time, what I had to do was really become more aware of that process and how it had led me to who I am and what I could do to change it if I didn't like where I was, which I didn't. And so then it was about therapy and therapeutic work I was in. I'm, I'm a person who has a pretty strong trauma history, I would say, in the list of what we call the adverse childhood experiences, of which there are 10, I had seven. <clears throat> so that puts me pretty highly at risk for, you know, by the time I'm 30, I'm either a drug addict, homeless, in prison, you know, pretty bad outcomes for people who have that kind of trauma. And so just the fact that I was still upright at 30 was pretty great. And then after therapy and a lot of other therapeutic approaches, I just really thought, you know, other people need to understand that at some point, you don't have to do what they call inner child work and get in touch with your inner child and stuff. You just really need to understand child development and know how it worked for you as a process of science. You know, it's not about your parents being good or bad. It's about the fact that you developed over seven years a brain and a personality. And do you know how that happened? Let's talk about it. Yeah. And so I, I think one of the biggest reasons that this topic was of interest to me is because I'm a mom and I have almost a three-year-old. So it, it scares the heck out of me to think about, oh my God. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> and I can still probably fix it, right? 
Um, yes. But that's the first kind of thought, right? I'm sure it's not just like, what am I doing wrong? But I'm, I'm eager to learn what to do right, right? And so yes. here, here you are, and that's why we're having this conversation. I guess for the sake, uh, for all of our listeners, me personally, of course, um, and you know, the sake of our children. So let's talk about why are these 2,500 days are so important? What happens? I know a lot of people talk about, even in like conversations I had about mindset, people, some like refer to the, you know, to these first seven years of our lives, but what is, like what happens exactly that sort of puts this imprint as to who we become later in life as adults? That is such the perfect question right now too, because I think, you know, we all, I think you're right. It's like a popular press uh, it's part of the culture now that the early years are important. We understand some people will even refer to them as the most important developmental years or the most important educational years. And they are. But most people don't know why that's true. And so what I want people to know is there's hard science, there's neuroscience behind this. This isn't just somebody saying, you know, oh, kid babies are vulnerable. And so we have to be careful. What we know now, starting um, back in some uh, neuroscience research from the 1980s and 1990s, what we know is that when we're born, our brain is not developed pretty much at all. So we have a, a little skull full of loose neurons that aren't connected to each other. And we get about 100 billion a piece when we're born. So you come into the world with basically a skull-shaped bowl full of angel hair pasta that is not connected to it itself, except the neurons that connect your senses to your brain for the receipt of sensory input are connected. And so then every single bit of input that comes through those sensory intakes, all of that begins to build the brain. And you, each of us, each baby, each of us individuals create a hundred, no, not a hundred, a million new connections a second. Wow. A million new connections a second. And so those hundred billion loose fibers are running around, hooking up to each other in all kinds of complex patterns. And it's completely unique for each of us. And it is entirely based on our experience. So the sensory inputs from your world, whatever's happening in your world, the breeze is blowing, somebody's feeding you, somebody's changing your diaper, you're lying in your crib in the dark crying and nobody's coming, um, somebody's hurting you physically, whatever is happening to you, your brain is responding by connecting neurons. And so for somebody like me who had seven out of 10 adverse childhood experiences as the routine of my life from birth to three, Almost all of that early wiring was around shame, humiliation, fear, pain, okay? Whereas a baby who spends most of their time in an environment where they get fed when they're hungry, they get changed when they're wet, people talk to them when they're awake and let them rest when they're tired. You know, when, the, when they're in an environment that responds to who they are as a baby and supports their needs, then their brain wires up around all of that. And so that's the critical missing piece, I think, for most people, that 85% of your brain's architecture is actually constructed minute by minute from the time you're born until you're three. And then there's a little bit more building that goes on from three to five. Um, almost everything that we build from birth to three is our social and emotional self. It's the brain architecture around who you are as an interpersonal being. And then more from four to five, you're building a lot of connections that are like school stuff. 
numbers and shapes and it's the it's the cognitive uh, sort of school learning stuff that you're getting conventional knowledge talking lots of vocabulary coming in at that point um, and so by the time you're five your brain is 95 percent wired up you're done and I think what happens then uh, as a developmental psychologist what I see is that kids take that basic wiring and all the things they've learned about who they are and how to get along in the world either the success strategies they were supposed to have or some different ones that aren't so successful. And they work on that for two years and they hone it into a little personality. And by the time they're seven years old in second grade, they are a type, they are a person and you know who they are and you know what they like and you know how they get along in the world. You're, you're um, able to say about your child at, at age seven, oh, he's a real go-getter or she's really, um, She's kind of a hang back and wait for other people to take the lead kind of a kid. Or, you know, you can talk about your kid's personality pretty clearly by the time they're seven. And then they just live from there for a long time until they get to be about 13. And the brain starts pruning away the parts of uh, the, the network that weren't used very much. So if you had a little early experience with developing a strong success strategy for trusting other people, let's say that's the infant success strategy. You got a little bit of stuff about that, but then a whole lot of bad stuff happened and you really wound up being someone who doesn't use trust as a success strategy, but uses other kinds of, you know, manipulations and fear and stuff. And, and now it's like, you're stuck with that. So you have to work with that going forward. And, and that part that was there that had the healthy bits about trust that the brain says, ah, haven't used that for 10 years. We're acts in that. And so when you see how, how you know, people talk about preteens and tweeners uh, hormones as being a lot of what makes them so difficult. It's also the fact that their brain is very busy shedding, pruning away stuff that they don't need. And I think those two things together, the hormones and the brain pruning explain an awful lot about how we should be a lot more tender with our tweens and teens than we are too. So if, so you think that all of this is based on the experiences, especially in these first 2,500 days. And so mm -hmm. uh, like zero to three. And so like I'm, my son is, my son Liam is just about to turn three. So um, if it's, if, if how their brain is developed and you know, what messages are like get stuck in there, I know I'm not using the right terminology, but I think it's, uh, it's understood. So wouldn't you say that community where they're in, right? Parents and whoever's taking care of them, gives them those experiences right yes. so when we look at this situation i shouldn't call it a problem right where do we begin to make the changes who needs to make the changes first right and i'm assuming yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes i know it's so it's so wonderful to think that you can just you know not change yourself and be able to do something different but you know, just like on the airplane where the flight attendant tells you, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you mm -hmm. help the children. And that's the way it works in parenting and teaching too, because I want to say that there's an awful lot of people in education who are working with our children who don't successfully use these strategies or teach them, help children develop them. Yeah. That is my worry for sure. And that's yeah. why I'm requiring about this. Yeah. Thing. You know, for, to learn for myself, of course, because I'm wondering, I don't remember uh, of my course. first zero to three, I, I barely remember, like, I don't even know, I have to think about this, maybe it'll come to me as we're talking, what do I remember, you know, at, at that, of that age? Yeah, um, and most of us don't, most of us know from birth to three, we know sto family stories, mm -hmm. what other people have told us about what it was like for us. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're right. I think I should remember when my grandma or my mom or my dad are telling me, like, this is how you were. This is right. what you did. Um, and that probably shaped my experience of or understanding of, of the world. And so, so how, so that's so adults, right? Us, um, moms and dads who are raising these kids. What, what do we need to do? Like, what are these strategies you're talking about? And where do we, where's the self-awareness thing comes in? I also want to kind of the, have the angle of it as, as to how it relates to our finances, because that's, yes. that's important piece too, right? In this whole, yes. you can build a relationship with all kinds of things, with the self, with other people, with things. And so, and because finances and money is such a big part of our life. Yes. Yes. I want to do right. <laughs> it's like a whole separate relationship. It's like a marriage. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. The relationship with many. Yeah. Well, let's start with those first three then, because I think that's a really mm-hmm. important uh, foundation for our relationship with money and financial success too. Um, so think of each age as having a strategy that makes the kids successful and that you need to be successful as an adult too. So when you're born, you're completely dependent you are basically a limp noodle with a brain in its head that hasn't been created yet. You can't, you know, almost all other mammals are born with the ability to start feeding themselves and moving by themselves immediately. It's pretty important out on the savanna to be able to do that. Well, we're a different kind of species. And so we're born utterly dependent and we stay dependent for a long time. And so the only strategy for success when you're completely dependent on other people is to trust them. Okay, so infants in the first six months work the strategy of trust and they either come out of that period with a successful ability to trust that the world will meet the needs that they have, or they come out of that period believing that the world is simply not there for them, no matter what they need, nobody cares, they don't have, nobody has their back, okay, so that's like the extremes of the continuum, and we come somewhere along that line from If I have a need, I know that it will be met. I am comfortable trusting other people with things that I need. And the other end of the continuum is, I don't trust anybody to meet my needs. I got to take care of myself, okay? So imagine that that strategy now is the strategy that you carry into your adult relationships. Mm -hmm. So when you need something from other people, when you're an infant, you need stuff like feed me, change my diaper, put something warmer on me, take something off me so I'm cooler. When you're a grown-up, your needs are complicated. There are things like validation, <laughs> um, respect, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who you feel listens to and hears you and gets who you are. You know, you need things that are emotionally and socially and interpersonally somewhat complex. Well, who do you trust with those needs? Mm-hmm. And do you know, are you aware, are you aware in your life right now how you use the strategy of trust and where you could use it better? And so then the work I do with the adults is to ask those questions. And we have exercises that I do, development do-overs, I call them, where we take a look at that. We look at how does trust operate in your life right now and where can you change it and how? So that's kind of my put your oxygen mask on approach for adults. Mm -hmm. So you start with trust as an infant. And then once you figure out whether you can lean on the world, now you get to stand up on your own two legs and start walking. And you come into that toddler year with the ability to start physically moving and you have sort of found the edges of your physical body. You know, you kids do a lot of that in the crib. They lie there, look at their hands and they put them in their mouths and they grab their feet and they learn literally the edges of, of their physical self. They learn the boundary of their skin. 
And then when they come into the toddler years, what they need to do is have the strategy of having a skin like that, a quote skin around their thoughts, their opinions and their beliefs, everything that happens in their mind, thoughts, opinions, and beliefs, their feelings, their emotions, and their, what I call their desires or their longings, the things they just want, you know, the stuff you go for. And that's everything from, I want that potato chip to, I want to change the world in this particular way. So it's all of the, the sort of dreams and longings of your life. You can think of it as sort of a, a spiritual boundary, maybe or a boundary of, of uh, spirit. So you got a body boundary that's your actual physical skin, and then you need to have a boundary of skin around your mind, your heart, and your soul, basically. And so toddlers get up on their feet and they start running around the world and they start telling us all that stuff. They get language and they start trying to express to us all the ways that they are, how they think, what they feel, what they want, and how the adults in their lives deal with that either affirms for them the strategy of independence, the strategy of knowing this is who I am. I'm inside my skin. I'm over here. I'm this person and I'm not you. You're over there. You're a different person and you have different thoughts, different feelings. And you know, it's cool when you watch little kids develop these boundaries, you can see it happening right in front of you. Think about if you've ever been in a group of toddlers, little kids, like 18 months to 30 months. If somebody gets upset and starts crying, everybody starts crying, right? because there's no skin around the feelings they leak out and if that kid is sad I'm probably sad too because I don't know how to tell the difference between me and thee mm -hmm. and even though they have the physical uh, skin of their body separate they get that they're not the same physical body as you they don't get that you don't feel what they feel they don't get that you don't know the thoughts in their head I used to have kids in my preschool classroom tell me, remember last year at my birthday party and I hadn't even met them back then. <laughs> I didn't even know them then and I wasn't at their birthday party, but because it's in their mind, they think it's in my mind. So you can see kids start to develop the sense that they're separate. And one of the ways that you know that is when one little kid cries and somebody goes up and comforts him instead of starting to cry. Mm -hmm. That's a kid with an emotional boundary. Oh, he's hurt. I'm not, I got this, okay? Mm -hmm. So you carry that strategy of independence. I know who I am. I'm confident in myself and I'm comfortable in myself into your adult life or you don't. And you wind up being somebody who is codependent, trying to figure out what other people want from them all the time, changing who they are in response to who they're with because they're just trying to go along to get along. So they don't have any thoughts of their own that they're willing to share. They don't have any feelings or all of their feelings should be your feelings. And they think they know how you feel all the time because... They're projecting all over you what they, you know, that's the kind of strategy that you have as an adult. If you don't get the independent strategy healthy as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then by three, you start paying attention to the rest of the world. It's not so much about you anymore. It's an about what's going on around me. And the, the, the three-year-old kind of opens their eyes and looks at the world and says, oh my gosh, look what I've been missing. <laughs> look at all this cool stuff out here. And they believe in every kind of magic and possibility and they're full of fantasy and play they're the most fun to play with they make stuff up so well because for them there is no boundary on possibility now they know who they are but those dreams the things that they want they go everywhere because they don't think that there's anything that they can't do mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful strategy to carry into your adult life so i call it faith and it's not just religious faith or spiritual teachings even it's the belief in things that are unprovable 
anything that's unprovable, anything that you think might be impossible. And so look at those three and what they tell you about your money management. Do you trust that there's enough money for you? Or are you always worried that there's never enough money for you? The world has your back with money or it doesn't. You absolutely know what you think about money. You know how you feel about money. You're self-aware of your relationship with money and you're over here and money's over there. It's not you. That's the independent strategy applied to money management. And if you believe that all things are possible, you have faith, you invest in your dreams, you invest in possibility, you have a different relationship with money then as well. So those three strategies affect the way you parent, they affect the way you work uh, with people that you work with, they affect the way you interact with your spouse, and they affect the way you manage your life. Mm-hmm. Where does, oh, yeah, I'm just curious on, on the money piece, um, I'm fascinated by everything you say, and it makes a lot of sense <laughs> on the money like, piece. So because, I mean, even just like in the first three years of the child, you know, the child, the child growing, I'm just thinking, I, I haven't quite talked to Liam about, um, you know, finances, any of that, because, because I guess I was, I don't know, I was waiting for the time to when he can start now to understand what's going on around the world. Yes. I, I'll give an example. <clears throat> where I don't, it probably is not tying into money, but he came home not too long ago from daycare and says, mommy, can I have $5? And I look at him, why $5? (laughs) You know, specifically $5. And I am sure he doesn't know what it means. No, he he doesn't. doesn't. And he just, all he wanted me to do is put a, put a hand in my pocket and just not even have anything in there. Just like hand it to him like that. So that's like one example. And it's like, we're going to the store and he's like, uh, and, and he wants he wants something, right? But it's not because he's, you know, such a bad toddler. It's just because what he, he, what he sees me do, right? We go to the store, I put things in the cart. That's right. <clears throat> and I say, you have money. He said, and he puts a hand in his pocket. This is $5. So like, where's that connection? Because a lot of times the, the blocks that I'm seeing with clients, conversations I'm, you know, I'm having about, you know, their behaviors, adults with finances. So where like these blocks start to develop, because right now we we're not talking about saving, we're not talking mm-hmm. about spending, we're not talking about investments, like none of that, probably for a while, because the brain has not developed yet. To that is correct. Concept. That is correct. That's right. right. Until um, four, we can't even really talk logically about anything because up through three everything's pretty mystical for us everything is on you know the moon follows the car when you drive when you're three Mm -hmm. and by the time you're five you understand that that's not what's happening but at three you believe in the magic of the moon follows the car Mm -hmm. and nobody's going to tell you otherwise so no you can't have conversations about um, transactional exchanges about cause and effect anything that is logical you can't talk to three-year-olds about it and really until they're about six they're not really grounded in logic as a sort of moment-to-moment approach to the world so between four and six they start to develop like about four kids can start to see physical cause and effect i push the tower blocks and it falls down they get that and they start that of course earlier you know i throw the toy on the floor from the the high chair and mommy comes and gets it and puts it back and I throw it again. It's a game, right? But by the time you're 
four and five, you're starting to get a little bit more um, understanding about this is something that I can use in the world. This is like a, a, an information that helps me do what I need to do. So I think some of the things that you're talking about start with the next two success strategies at four and five, which I call negotiation and vision. So, you know, at, at three, you can think of, a, of, a, of an infant and a toddler, a one and two year old, you can kind of think of them as just looking down at their navel and being focused on themselves. The three-year-old you can think of as looking up and opening her arms wide to the sky and standing on her tiptoes and running at life. That's a three-year-old. A four-year-old, think of the four-year-old as uh, folding his arms over his chest and giving you a skeptical look and saying, how is that fair? <laughs> okay, so fours are all about they're starting to get cause and effect. And so they're starting to understand equality and fairness. And so they want all the sizes of the pizza to be the same size or all the brownies to be the same size. Nobody can get a bigger one. Um, they have a lot of stuff about that. And they want to be able to figure out what, what I think they're mostly doing is trying to figure out how to get what they want. So the, from that independent strategy of the toddler, they have, they're real clear now by four what they want. And now they're trying to figure out how to get it from you or from anybody else. And the, the strategy is about understanding that other people have interests that are different from yours. Okay, they have a boundary around their thoughts and their interests and their opinions, and so do you. And what you want, you have to figure out sort of what's the, the array of their interests that you're aiming your desire at. So if you're a four-year-old kid and your parent is negotiating with you for a meal, you're the kid who wants, you know what you want to eat. And what you're trying to figure out is, is this a thing mom will let me eat or dad will let me eat? And, and so you're looking for the, the parent, if they're smart, here's, I always advise all parents up to the age of about six, don't ever ask your child an open-ended question when it's something like that, ask, give them two choices. Do you want a cheese sandwich or you want a bowl of tomato soup? Don't say, what do you want for lunch? <laughs> okay. So, so you offer two things and the child at four comes back with a third alternative. And what their goal is, is not to harass you. It's to try to hit the same target out of which you offered those two choices. So you've got like a box, you've got a container of your own, you've got your own boundary around what you're going to offer, you're not going to offer something for lunch that you have to go shopping for first, you're not so rule number one is it has to be in the house rule number two maybe is it has to be nutritious rule number three is it can't be tacos because we're having those for dinner I mean it's like you've got a box. The kid's trying to figure out your box. He's trying to shoot his desire inside the box so you will say yes. Right. And so our a parenting strategy has to be to support the efforts to negotiate. Well, if you can give them what they ask for, give it to them. That's a that's a great alternative. Good job of figuring out something that would work also. So here you go. Get it. And so negotiating to get what you want is so important when you're working with money. You have to know what you want and you have to know what the other person wants. I think one of the most classic uh, sort of metaphors about this is two kids fighting over a piece of fruit, the last orange in the bowl. They both want it and they're having a big blowout argument over it. And it turns out in the end, when the parent intervenes, that one of them wants to eat the orange and the other one wants the zest to make uh, something else. So they actually aren't in conflict at all. <laughs> and often when we are trying to get something and we're fighting for it, we're really not in conflict. 
We just don't know what the other person wants and that they would give it to us if they understood. So if you have independence as a strategy and you have negotiation as a strategy, as a grown-up, you never have to manipulate somebody. You never have to be the person who asks three lead-up questions in order to frame it so you get the answer you want to the fourth question, which is the real one. You don't set people up so they can't say no to you. You don't uh, try to um, emotionally manipulate people into doing something by feel, having them feel sorry for you. You know what you want and you ask for it and you ask for it in a way that will get it because you understand how to work with what other people want. I think that's crucial in money management. Exactly. It's very crucial, especially in, in your relationships that you build with your significant others, right? A growing yes. family, like that's where like the, that, a lot of that dynamic is hard. Yes. And, and conflicts. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the reason why there's so many marriages end up in divorce. Yeah. Because I think that couples don't share the boxes with each other. They don't share their independent boxes. They do a lot of assuming that the other person is just like them. They don't have the strategy of independence. And so they project themselves onto the, their spouse, their partner, and they think she, he is just like me in all things and they never find out they never ask the question so a lot of this a lot of self-awareness is about curiosity about yourself and about other people is asking the question why did i do that what made me make that decision why didn't i just ask for what i wanted you know just noticing yourself and what you do lets you see how the strategies operate and so that's the fun the fundamental place is that's why self-awareness is the name of the strategies because if i don't look at how i do it i can't change it yeah it just sounds it, it, the the way that you're looking at it. Well, I don't know if it's any different, but it's just it's just the, the way that the media and people talk about this is this like the self awareness thing. It's like you just sit and do nothing. No, it's no. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's like you're self aware, but it, it, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, and mm -hmm. and being able to to discover that right to to dig deeper and possibly ask questions. Is, yeah, is, is, is I'm sure that's the work that that you get to do with adults. Um, on figuring that out. So what's, okay, so we're in the uh, negotiation phase and then did you say vision? Vision is the five-year-old strategy. Five-year-olds are the little strategic planners of the preschool world. They come up with the goals and they like to figure out how to get there. They're all about the step-by-step -step plan to get to a, an end point. And so one of the things that five-year-olds enjoy also is taking stuff apart to see how it's made. Like if you give them an old, mechanical object, an old typewriter, an old computer, you pick up an old, you know, Apple IIc at a garage sale somewhere and give them a screwdriver. <laughs> They'll have a blast taking it apart and seeing what all the parts are and how they fit together. And that's what they also do with uh, interpersonal process. So they look at the parts and how you make them work. And so they'll come up with an idea of something they want to do, like an achievement. Uh, and they come up with great ideas, five-year-olds do, you know, like let's build a robot and let's build a rocket ship and fly to the moon. They have some great ideas. And then they will plan and plan and plan. If you support them in the planning process, they will spend a great deal of time figuring out how to do it. And at some point they'll either figure it out well enough that they'll actually do the thing that they wanted to do, or they'll learn a great deal about why they can't do that. And they'll stop because they learned that it didn't work. So one of the things that happens for us when we're five is that instead of being encouraged to try those things and to, to map out and to go to the failure and learn from it or go to the success and learn from it, we tell kids they can't do those things. That's too hard. You're not big enough to do that. That's too hard. 
we, we can't build a rocket and fly to the moon. Nobody, you know, only scientists can do that. You know, it's like, so we discourage the dreams of the three-year-old because they're crazy. They're fantastical. No, the moon doesn't follow you. No, you can't grow up to be a fairy queen. You know, whatever they think at three, we tell them no. And then at five, when they want to do something extraordinary, like, you know, build the tallest Lego tower in the world, if we just tell them you can't do that, that's impossible, then they don't ever get to try either to do it or to learn that you can't do it. But all we have to do is support it a little. Well, let's find out that that sounds cool. That's exciting. I don't know whether we can do that. Let's try it. What's the biggest Lego, Lego tower that's ever been built? Let's look it up in Ripley's or wherever we find those records. And then we make a plan and we try it. Now, if you don't give kids opportunities to do this, what they'll do is they'll do it in their play. And they'll plan how to play some, you know, um, imaginary play. They'll plan how to play pirates or they'll plan how to play uh, Star Wars or they'll plan how to play what's the latest thing that kids are playing these days, uh, Paw Patrol or whatever, you know. So they'll talk about the roles they're going to have and what's going to happen as they play and they'll do it that way. But if you give them, if you listen to their ideas beyond play, like the things they want to do and just say, wow, that sounds cool. Let's try that. Children can do actually astonishing things by four and five and six years of age. Astonishing things. If we just help them a little bit. So I, I want to ask this question because I know you, you're all progressing really, really fast to the like to the seven year old. So at some point we're going to get there. Why is there this idea that toddlers are like the worst human beings on earth? Yes, they do. Um, you know, they do need help with managing their feelings and, you know, that face, but like the, the terrible twos, everybody's asked, you know, asked me that question, like, has that hit? Yep. That? And I, I think for, it's different for everybody, but like, why is there such a bad stigma around this? A terrible That's thing. a great, that is a great question. And I want to start the answer by saying it isn't everybody. It's our culture. It's American culture. Other cultures don't consider toddlers terrible. It's us. Other cultures are astonished that we we toddlers terrible sometimes. So I think the best metaphor for this is the metaphor for learning to walk when you're an infant. When the infants first learn to walk, they're not good at it. They need help. They need you to hold on to them or they need to hold on to furniture and they fall down a lot. And sometimes they fall down and really hurt themselves badly. And sometimes they hurt other people. They fall on top of things and they fall on top of other people and they bump their heads into your teeth and all kinds of stuff happens when kids are learning to walk that looks like failure, but nobody calls them failures at walking. Nobody tells them they can't. Nobody discourages them from trying again. So when we get to be a toddler, what we're trying to do is stand up and walk on our interpersonal feet. <laughs> we have our physical feet under us, and now we're trying to figure out how to be a person in the world. So we're figuring out how to tell other people what we think, how to show other people how we feel, and how to share our innermost dreams and excitements, our, our energy with other people. And whenever we make a mistake, which we do often, we you know lose control of our emotions and we go ballistic and we have a tantrum, or we uh, try to express what we're thinking and we can't explain it in the language that we have and people can't understand our new language. And so they get upset and frustrated with us and we get angry at them and then there's a meltdown. All the mistakes that we make trying to walk on our interpersonal feet are considered failures. And people judge us and call us terrible because we're not yet good at being interpersonal beings when we are first starting to do it. Well, big surprise. You know, I walk a lot better now than I walked when I was nine months old. 
<laughs> Big surprise. <laughs> I should also be able to interpersonally relate with other people better than I could when I was two. We don't expect you to start out perfect, but we do when it comes to all of this stuff. And here's why I think so, because mostly Americans don't grow up with that strategy of independence intact. And so that interferes with our parenting and our teaching severely because we are projecting ourselves onto our kids. We don't have the boundary of ourselves. So we're acting as if they are who we are, that their behavior means what it would mean if we did it, mm -hmm. that they are trying to manipulate and control us because that's what we would be doing if we did that. But we're grownups. Of course, we're not doing that anymore, right? That's an early attempt at interpersonal to manipulate people. Well, you help kids learn to do differently. So yeah, that's a really important thing to look at is the way we judge children's progress on each of these developmental stages that are so unique. We're just fine with babies being babies. They're just a hot mess, aren't they? They're just the worst age. They puke on you. They pee on you. They can't talk to you. They cry all the time. What is the point in having a baby? Right? And then all of a sudden here they are trying to be grown up and interact with us and we're like, you're not doing it right. Oh, guys, I, lo I love how you're describing all of this. All of this. So, okay, um, we're at five, are we close to six, six year olds? Yes, yeah, and six and seven go together so well okay. too because the last two success strategies are really about kind of locking all this into a personality. So it becomes about compromising and accepting. And you can do these two things at six and seven because you're starting to get logical. So compromise begins with, you know, that, that negotiation strategies for four, most of the time, four-year-olds have pretty simple things that they're trying to work out. So it's like, you know, I want this one thing and you want this one thing. Can we figure out a way for both of us to get it? So win-win. But when you're six, you want like 20 things <laughs> and your friends all want 20 things. And so you can't make five kids happy who all want 20 things. Somebody's going to have to give up some. And somebody else is going to have to give up some. You're going to have to release, let go of some of what you want. This is a big deal for six-year-olds because they they have been practicing getting what they want, right? And so now you're telling them, well, yeah, man, can't get it all the time. And so what they have to learn to do is to have a values orientation toward the decision. That's what makes it a successful strategy. If I choose which of my desires, the things I want, which of those is most important to me based on my values? I value kindness. So if I have to give up something, I'm going to give up the thing that doesn't compromise kindness. That's my number one. My number two is if I know what my values are, then when I'm compromising, I'm doing it from a position of strength and self-awareness. And I'm letting go of things that are really not necessary in order to have the things that are most important to me. And we encourage each other in a group, you know, think this is like first grade. So here's a group of first graders, you know, who are all should be encouraging each other. Well, but could you, could you let go of that one thing in order to have us all have this, you know, kids can have those conversations then because cause and effect and the birth of logic is coming. And then they start to find out, oh, compromise means letting go means I just I have to accept that I let go I have to let it go and I have to not live then under the regret of letting it go I have to be okay with the fact that I let it also is very very successful when it's values based you know accept <clears throat> any other part of acceptance I want to say too is the recognition that it doesn't always go right 
you can follow every rule that the teacher lays out and you can still get in trouble. You can be really, really nice to that bully and he might still bully you. You can be the best daughter or son on the planet and your parents might divorce or one of them might die. Bad things happen to good people and we all have to accept that. Even if you manage your money absolutely perfectly, something terrible that you couldn't expect might happen and you might go completely out, wind up being homeless. You know, you, uh, uh, one medical emergency away from homelessness, a lot of people. So it's about uh, those compromise and acceptance strategies are about kind of polishing off everything else and forming it, holding it together in a way that lets a logical adult person use every single one of those earlier strategies in an effective way to get along in a group. That's where you really see that it's about getting along in a group. First grade, second grade, uh, the world is different for kids when they get past kindergarten. It's, it's harder. There's more to deal with interpersonally. And so they have to be able to use these strategies well. Yeah, no, totally. So in, in, in summarizing all of this, what do you think is the most important piece that you know, that helps us build these healthy relationships that parents just absolutely cannot miss. Like what is, there was one thing to take away. Yeah, and for me, it's probably the two, it's trust and independence. I think of them as the floor, the foundation of a house. And we stand on that floor and we build the rest of our personality house around it. It's trust and independence. What if you have missed it? If your kids are older, I'm sure my listeners are it's not, not too late. No, right. So, and I think that's, that probably is the connection or the bridge to the work that you get to do with adults, right? Because you yes. can go back. Never too late. Yes. You can start that process. So talk a little bit about how, how does that work? What do you do and how can our listeners connect with you? Okay, great. Yeah. So what I offer, as I mentioned before, is work that I call development do-over. So we take a look at how do you trust right now in your life? Who are you trusting for which of your needs? Let's take a look at that. How's that working? Would you like to change it? Let's talk about how you can. And, for, and then I do the same process with the other strategies as well. And the, the, pro, the work really is about noticing what you do and then echoing the child's developmental process in an adult process that makes more sense. So you can't go back to being a baby that needs to be fed and diapered. That's stupid. Of course, you can't go back to that way of learning to trust. But what you can do is look at what are the needs that I have as an adult interpersonally? What do I need from my spouse? What do I need from my friends? What do I need from people? And am I getting it? And how, where, who's doing that? And then do I want to change that becomes you repattern your behavior. Your, your behavior is just a, a pattern. It's a personality that you've developed based on this early wiring of your brain. You can change the pattern and through that backwards rewire the brain also. If you haven't been affected by trauma, if you just kind of had a normal every day, your parents are pretty cool most of the time and they make a mistake and yell at you now and then, or they say something snotty that they have to apologize for. You know, it's like, this is what is most persistent in your life. If mostly you get your needs met, you'll grow up with this strategy of trust. You don't have to worry about making a mistake every now and then as a parent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How, um, where do you think if somebody's looking at their finances and sort of trying to figure out like, I'm not good, good with money. Like, where do you think, which of these phases, right? Would the seed be, I'm like, where would it be seeding from, right? Like if there's this first disbelief about like, I'm not good with money. I just, yeah, I just never make enough or spend it all. Like, 
it's just a total mess there. I'm not good with money. Sounds like trust to me. I don't trust myself with money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, other ideas like um, um, I I can't figure out how to um, kind of like how to distribute what I have across what I need, that matchy matchy part. That's not about trust. That's probably more about um, probably more about negotiation or independence. It's, so it depends on what the barrier is. But boy, so many people, it is that basic, I just don't, I don't trust myself with money. Yeah, or I haven't yeah. gotten enough education about it. No, my mom didn't teach me. I didn't take a class in high school, like all of those things. Um, yes. Okay, but, that makes sense. But skills can be learned, like skills that you didn't learn in school, you can learn if you trust yourself to learn them, if you believe in yourself, if you have faith in your ability to learn, if you believe that you can ask questions and say what you need while you're learning, right? So yeah, I think mostly the first four are an awful lot about everything in our lives, almost any place you're not successful, whether it's with money or your spouse or your workplace, it's about those first four. It's about trust, independence, and faith and negotiation. Fantastic. So how can our listeners connect with you? I know you have a class uh, or independent course starting soon. So yes, I'm offering some uh, small coaching groups. I want to work with small groups of about seven women at a time, looking at these, uh, areas of self-awareness. And so, yeah, I'd like to invite people to check those out on my website, lcarolscott.com. And if you'll send me an email at carol at lcarolscott.com, I will send you back a little cute little book at, it's a little uh, 20 pages cover to cover that explains the self-aware success strategies and how they work in your life and how to support them in kids all in one little tiny book. So I'd be glad to email that back today. It's a PDF that I can send to anybody who emails me. Sounds good. Thank you so much. I've learned a ton. I very much appreciate you joining us. Anna, thank you so much for having me. You were a delight to talk with. Hey, Money Boss. Thanks for tuning in today. If this episode did help you, then please be sure to share it with someone else you think will benefit from it too. After all, smart financial decisions are for everyone. Uh, so don't be greedy. I hope I can help you even further by sharing with you how thousands of clients I worked with in my career over the last 16 years created their very own successful financial lives on their terms. It's hard for me to do this over an audio, and if you are ready for the next chapter in your life, then be sure to go to MainStreet-Money.com to get your free resource guide to help you begin correcting top six financial mistakes I see people make all the time, such as not having clear financial goals, not having a handle on spending or saving for the future, not knowing how to get rid of all the debts, and of course, not having a clear strategy or plan on how to protect your hard-earned money. Until next time, remember, you are the boss of your money.